over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Welcome back to the broadcast. It's my delight to have Dr. David Lamb back on the podcast. And just to give you a little reminder, we've had Dr. Lamb feature before in our big book cover-to-cover series. Dr. Lamb has extensive teaching experience cross-culturally in Nigeria, Mexico, Kazakhstan, and Russia. In July of 2016, he co-authored a textbook, The Historical Writings, colon, Introducing Israel's historical literature. He also addresses the topic of confusing sexual behavior in the book Prostitutes and Polygamists, A Look at Love, Old Testament Style. And I just mentioned to Dr. Lamb, I watched a video on YouTube of him speaking to a group of college kids about this that I highly recommend. Maybe we can put that in the show notes. He has also examined problematic passages where it seems like God behaves badly. He has just completed his commentary on First and Second Kings and awaiting the publisher's release of that book, perhaps in the next year or sooner. He's worked with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for many years on campus staff, team leader, and area director. And currently, he is the McRae Professor of Old Testament and the Dean of Faculty at Missio University. Dr. David Lamb, thanks for coming back on the program. Michael, it's my pleasure to join you today. I love talking about the Bible. It was a delight to do that a while ago, and I'm really happy to be back. Well, and you mentioned before we started taping, you just finished a three-hour class, so hats off to you, props to you that you can teach for three hours. And of course, we're in this limbo right now of COVID-19, so you're doing online and Zoom work. That's got to be a kind of a new, interesting way to teach. It is. You know, my wife actually was talking about how God used persecution in the book of Acts to force the first century church out of Jerusalem. And we were kind of wondering how God is going to be using COVID-19 to force the 21st century church to be better utilizers of technology in order to advance his kingdom and to advance his mission in the world. So it's a challenge, but we're trying to see how God is behind it somehow and leading us into new areas and new realms. Well, let's go from the cutting, bleeding edge of technology and whatever COVID-19 is going to do with us to the wonderful, delightful, fun structurally amazing piece of work known as the Book of Jonah. It is a whale's tale, more technically a fish story. People start there and they go, well, of course that can't be real and we'll get to that. But let's get a flyover of the book from your perspective, Dr. Lamb. Yeah, it's really a story about, well, one, I mean, I love your summary. It's a great story and it's a story about God and a story about his prophet Jonah, his reluctant prophet Jonah, but it's a story about loving your enemies and about people somehow being reconciled to God. And 
God works in a wild variety of ways using nature and creation to get his message across. But it's a story that we've learned, many of us have learned in Sunday school, and that's fantastic. But there's also profound lessons that for those of us who may feel pretty familiar with it, but can offer us today as adults. And every time I look at it, I see new things. So I'm looking forward to talking about it with you today, Michael. One of the things we talked about in the series, G. Campbell Morgan wrote, men have been looking so hard at the great fish, they've failed to see the great God. Yeah. And there's so much more going on. We, we have, as you know, the fish to plant the worm and the scorching wind. And we could also say the sailors who all respond and obey God. And the one who doesn't obey God, of course, is our flawed character, Jonah. But this is a literal city. There's no debate, correct? Historically. Correct. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. No, that, and they've got ancient monuments and ancient inscriptions that are centered in Nineveh. The, the Assyrians had multiple capitals, but there was a period of time where Nineveh was definitely the capital, and we've got monuments and inscriptions from that city. Yes. Nahum, if I recollect, by Nahum's time, Nineveh is the most powerful Washington, D.C. esque of yeah. the Assyrian Empire, correct? Oh, yeah. The Ninevites, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, you know, from roughly 900 to about 650 or maybe 620, but they were the most powerful nation um, on earth at that point in time. So, yeah, they were big and their capital was like Washington, D.C. You know, that's a, that's a very apt description. Someone has likened Jonah to a spiritual teenager. Others <laughs> yeah. have said, what if when God's grace makes you angry? You mentioned this earlier. And talk a little bit about your insights from your study of the person, Jonah, first of all. Yeah, I mean, Jonah is a fascinating person because, well, one, he shows up in Second Kings. He just he, he's he shows up in one other place during the reign of Jeroboam the second. So he shows up in Second Kings chapter fourteen, verse twenty-five, and he gives a prophecy to this Israelite ruler, and he says. God spoke to me, and your borders are going to expand. And that's great news for King Jeroboam. And so Jonah is a prophet that, for Jeroboam, was given good news, and it was kind of a very pro-Israel message. And so we know that he loves his country. He, you know, Some might call him a patriot. And I think that's some of the background for why he acts the way he does in the book. But he's a complex person, and we see a lot about his character in this book. The structure of the book is extraordinary. When I was teaching through it in, in a you know, one-shot message, I was trying to stress to our folks the verbal movement of the book is real easy for an English reader to see. You know, you're to arise, go up, cry against, and then he arose, he fled, he went down to a ship, he goes down <laughs> yeah. and pays the fare. And we see that image a number of times in the movement of the book. And we also obviously see him go down into the depth of the sea, down into yes. the stomach of the fish. And it's an interesting literary device that God, the Holy Spirit, is moving. Jonah wrote the book? Well, I mean, the only part of the book that Jonah speaks in the first person is chapter two, this poem that often gets skipped over, unfortunately. We we love the fun bit, you know, the out on the sail, he's a sailor, or he's out on this boat, and he gets swallowed, and then he goes into Nineveh. So the only part of the book that Jonah is written about in first person is chapter two. A lot of Old Testament books 
there's let's just say the ancient Israelites were less concerned about authorship than we are. Fair enough. Um, yeah. And so I think that it's possible he did, although if he did, he wrote about himself in third person for chapters one, three, and, and four. four. Right, although right. the question you could ask is like, how would he have known all about this? But you know, we, we encounter that issue in a lot of places. But definitely in chapter two, it's his poem from the belly of the fish. And so it's hard to say for sure, but it's certainly Jonah's perspective throughout the whole story. When I was in seminary and I was studying Hebrew, and I remember Dr. Alan Ross taking us through this book in great detail, and he made the point with the original sailors on the cargo ship that when they fear God and offer sacrifice, he said that's tantamount to what we would call conversion. What's your take mm. on that? These sailors are really impressive. I mean, I, you, you've kind of talked about these various characters. The sailors are modeling for us how to love our enemies. Jonah is not loving his enemies because he doesn't want the Ninevites to repent. But Jonah is the one that is causing them, their lives to be endangered. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, he just keeps doing crazy things. One, he's fleeing God and he's napping when he should be somehow contributing. And these sailors are amazing. They, even after Jonah says, throw me into the sea, they do everything possible to not throw him into the sea. And then when they do it, they kind of ask for, well, grace. And so, yes, there is definitely a conversion of sorts as they pray to the word there that's used, oh Lord, it's Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. And that's Yahweh is the God of Israel. So they're praying to Yahweh for grace and mercy. So, yes, I think that's a legitimate a conversion of sorts. These sailors are loving their enemy in a way that Jonah should have been. Again, the structure and the wordplay to me is just so delicious because the lot falls to Jonah. He says, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea. No, you don't fear him. <laughs> it's obvious, <laughs> right. but it's interesting. Who made the sea and, oh, by the way, the dry land, which they're not near right now. And, <laughs> right. and then, as you said, these guys have more integrity and conscientiousness about this, you know, man who's brought the trouble on them than he does for their lives. Yeah. It's just, they're, they're some of the most amazing characters in scripture. And as you think about them as these are foreigners, these are Gentiles, they are foreigners who are doing everything possible to save the life of this one solitary Israelite. And again, you contrast to that to how Jonah behaves later when he is, well, where he is now, he has the opportunity to save the lives of this big city and he goes in the opposite direction. So these sailors are really amazing all that they are doing to protect and prevent to keep Jonah alive. It's really impressive. I uh, often encourage my friends, you know, don't go where the Bible doesn't go and uh, don't extrapolate. But I do wonder when we, you know, see heaven and know Christ face to face and so forth, how the concentric rings of these unnamed sailors, how their lives affected other people and perhaps generations that, you know, I think yeah. will be all part of eternity. But I digress. Jonah chapter two, the psalm, prayer, poem, you mentioned people skip over it. This was one of the parts I loved teaching Good. a number of times in great detail because it is such a beautiful piece of poetry. The lament, I cried, I called, you heard, you cast. I often tell people, take a pencil or a pen and circle the first person pronoun and the second person pronouns and see how the 
because not everyone can see some of the poetry and structure that weird people like you and me like and might enjoy, <laughs> but you can see some obvious repetitive things, declarative, I will, I will, so forth. When you read this, give me your take on the messianic allusions. Wow. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I think... Or, or maybe you don't see it that way. No, no. I think it's important to see how does how does all scripture fall together, and how does the old relate to the new? How does the new kind of refer back to the old? So, I mean, I think you know we see a number of ways. It's really it's it's a prayer, a poetic prayer. I mean, I just have to throw in this one little thing though. It's like he's praying this from the belly of a fish, and this is a pretty impressive fish belly prayer. <laughs> and I, right. I, I, I like to think, is there a way that he could write this down? Well, I, and I, I, <laughs> I made the comment. Obviously, it must have gotten written later. Yeah, I made the just, comment, he's not inside Monstro at a table with a candle like no. Pinocchio writing on a little no. table with a wooden chair. He's got to be creating this. And then when he's, you know, regurgitated yes. later, obviously he pens his right. He's recalling I mean. <laughs> what his prayer was. Right. Again, what it says though, is, and again, we're in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis I just think to be writing down our prayers, to be journaling in the midst of a crisis, and then to be able to recall them and remember how God delivered us from whatever time, place, crisis that we have had in the past. So I hope that there are listeners out there that are writing down their thoughts and prayers in the midst of this crisis that we're in, that they can look back on in one year, two years, five years, and say, this is what I, I prayed in the midst of my kind of minute crisis. So I, mean, I see a number of ways that this can point forward or lead us to, to point us to Jesus. You know, he is prayer takes him to the, the holy temple. He is very temple focused. And the temple is really the dwelling of God. And we know that as the gospel of John informs us, when Jesus was the word, he was with God, he was God, and he was the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So I think at least on that level, you could say that this text is pointing us to a God who loves to be with his people, even with his people in foreign lands, even with his people that are in the belly of a fish, that God is dwelling with us. And I think that that's ultimately what we see with Jesus. Well, one of my questions for you is you've got, you know, the, obviously the lament distress call, which also a number of Psalms use the same language out of my distress. Yes. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and they parallel that to a messianic prayer when Christ is being crucified, as well oh, as, good. you know, water and company to the point of death. And, and then, of course, oh, wow. we have the two and three day issue, you know, that he's in the belly of the well three days and three nights. So yes. anyway, it, yeah. the illusion no, of and, and Jesus talks about that himself, the sign of Jonah. Which is remarkable. Is it's on. a remarkable illustration that he points to his critics. It's, all you're yeah. going to know is the story of Jonah. Yeah. And yes. they had to walk away scratching their heads going, what did he mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that's good. I mean, I do think sometimes I don't want to confuse people. I want to, I want to help people gain clarity, but I also want to give people questions and things to think about. And Jesus was always doing that. He was always getting people thinking and confusing them a little bit because he wants them to continue to search and to pursue him and ask more questions. And it's through that process of searching and seeking and questioning that we move it deeper into relationship with God. And I think that's important. So at the end of that prayer, we have the salvation is from the Lord, which of course is, I would argue that that and chesed, loving kindness are the two centerpieces theologically of the book. But it's interesting, he's 
praising God for his own salvation, not only what we would say as a Christian, but he was saved from this dilemma of would he drown, would he die? And obviously he's saved, but yet he does not have that for, you know, which reminds me, or striking to me, that in the dialogue at the end when God talks to him, he doesn't ask him, are you glad to be, that I saved you from the fish? <laughs> that doesn't come up. You know, he talks about the gourd and this, that, and the, but I think it's striking. The most important thing he saved was your life, and you don't even you know, reminisce on that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it is tragic that, you know, Jonah knew, I mean, he, he said, throw me into the ocean, you know, and he knew that he was going to die, and the sailors knew he was going to die, and so he deserved to die. But God delivered him. And you know, in one sense, chapter two is the high point for Jonah because it's, I mean, I would say it a little bit like David. David was at his best when he was being hunted by Saul and Saul was chucking spears at him. David, when David takes over the throne, it's kind of a, a gradual decline in many ways. And I think similarly with Jonah, when he's fleeing God in chapter one and he's giving a to me a very reluctant message you know i mean although in, in chapter 3 if you like short sermons you would love jonah's sermon <laughs> in chapter 3 cuz it's just a couple of words well um, but back to your point that's all we have recorded that's you right. Know, and I think the fact that he talks about this great city, a three days walk, I don't think that's, it took three days to walk around the city. I think it's, you know, based on the numbers we have, if you go 620 or 50,000 people, if they counted people that way, heads of households, he probably had a lot of, you know, conversations around the coffee pot, if we will, around the well of the community, around the markets. And, uh, you know, th- th- again, this is, high, we will know this for a fact, but it wouldn't make much sense if all he said, you know, was this one line. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. And I think that's a great point that there's, let's read this as a narrative. And anytime you read, well, you know, even Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this is what we have. We have chapters five, six, and seven of Matthew. And likewise, we have something, a construction of his sermon here in this verse or half verse. But it is interesting, at least the way that the text is portraying him, is it makes him seem like a reluctant preacher, I mean, in a variety of ways, even in his message. And there's no grace in that message. It's just 40 days more, right. and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. You mentioned death. I think I need to recount, but I'm going to say more than seven times there's an explicit or implicit reference to let me die. In chapter 1, verse 12, throw me into the sea. Chapter 4, verse 3, where he says, take my life from me. Death is better to me than life. He says yeah. that again toward the end of that exchange with God when the, he kills the gourd, uh, the shade plant. Death is better to me than life. Yes, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And so, so you, you have to have some compassion on the guy that he was so angry, depressed, all the above with what God is doing. And again, juxtaposed to God being slow to anger. Yes. And Jonah is the beneficiary of the divine slowness to anger here, because if anybody would be worthy of divine wrath, Jonah would be the one. But he is, again, Jonah perceives it all about the Ninevites, because he doesn't want the Ninevites to receive mercy. But the fact that God is slow to anger and gracious and merciful 
really benefits Jonah, first of all, more than anybody. In my class today, my Samuel King's class, we were looking at Elijah kind of under the broom tree when he basically tells God, it'd be better for me to die too. Go ahead and kill me. And I do think that we need to just realize that there are times for, well, Jonah's a prophet, Elijah's a prophet. I mean, Jonah was, you know, in many ways, a more impressive prophet. But there are times when all of us will be discouraged, despondent, maybe depressed, maybe burned out, and just really kind of like, I'm done. And I love how God responds graciously both to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and with Jonah here in chapter 4. It's just there's a graciousness about God's response. And you know what? God acts really like a counselor and just asks questions. And I think there's a lot to be said that God doesn't rebuke him right away, but just kind of comes alongside and asks him these questions. Do you do well to be angry? And he kind of, it's almost like a therapy session a little bit yeah. with, with Jonah here. And I think there's there's a lot of depth there. I, I don't want to overstate the text, but I, I find it striking. And if memory serves, the questions God asks man, beginning, of course, with Adam, you know, where are you? After yeah. he's eaten the fruit, the fourth question I think is there written in Hebrew in the Hebrew text, and it could be fifth or sixth, depending on how we translate English. Is to Cain, why are you angry? Yeah, and yeah. you find that repeated here in the book of Jonah. Do you have good reason to be angry? Yeah, and no, I think it's good. It's a it's striking, good. as you said, a human condition. Even if it's not quote counseling quote quote, but a a calibration. Do you really have a reason to be angry because life hasn't worked out the way you and I think it should work out? Do you really have grounds to be angry? And to me, boy, what a, you know, dope slap as I call it, you know, okay, snap out of it easily. God's kind and sovereign and you're just a sinner that deserves nothing. So it's, I had a friend recently, we were talking about Jonah and he thinks the book was written intentionally, obviously Holy Spirit, big A author, sure, Jonah, sure. Little, but he, he thinks the intent of the way the story was told was Jonah's sort of owning up to his own stuff. That's interesting. And he wants the reader to see how sinful and stupid he was. Interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because we typically... I would, I would love that to be the case. Yeah. And there's a lot of legitimacy. How would... I mean, again, chapter two is all Jonah's voice, first person, but who could tell this story better than the prophet himself. And if so, well, it's a little bit like, you know, you know, we know that probably Peter contributed to Mark's gospel and Peter doesn't look, well, and all the (laughs) disciples in general, they don't look very good. I mean, a lot of the gospels, but, you know, maybe at a few points in time, particularly Peter, and you think, wow, if, if Jonah were to tell this story, there's a humility there, which I think is great. I mean, who else could tell it? And make Jonah look as bad, you know, as Jonah himself. So yep. I, I, that's that's interesting. Yeah, and again, it's it's speculation, but it does frame the book in a way that yeah. says, you know, again, back to Cain. Do you have good reason to be angry, Jonah? Why yeah. are you angry? What what's you know, and what triggers our righteous indignation, or or we think our way is better than God's? You know, you mentioned COVID nineteen, and you know, who knows how long that's going to play out. By the time this broadcast is played, it could be much worse. It could be over. But at, at the end of the day, we're to respond by faith, not yes. by our experience or by trappings or by props that we create. 
And in some regard, to me, it's an exciting opportunity to mature the believer, thin the ranks, if you will, of people who do you really trust Christ and not? And if not, let's get right with the Lord. And some of the superfluous stuff in the church that we probably need to weed out. And on the other hand, to be, you know, this is a great opportunity for Jonah to show what God is like, for us to show what God is like, even though the world is is a crazy, difficult, fallen place. I think that's really good. And, you know, again, whether, I mean, who knows how long COVID-19 will be going on, but whether it's COVID-19 or some other crisis, you know, a death in a family member or loss of a job, we were all, all of us are going to go, hopefully none of us are going to get swallowed by a fish, but all of us are going to go through times of crisis or discouragement or burnout. And I think that there's just really profound lessons that we can take about how God is coming along with Jonah here. And I, the, the other thing I like to talk about is how God is, and you've alluded to this already, how God is just constantly using his creation to speak. You know, whether that's the sea and the storm or the fish or the plants that we see in chapter four and the worm even, but there's a way that God helps well, God speaks to us through creation. I think we see that in uh, most obviously what Jesus is always talking about nature in his in his parables. But, you know, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. I think we see the way that the creator speaks through his creation really powerfully in the book of Jonah. And that there is kind of a mentoring really almost of the prophet here by God in trying to teach him about the value of compassion on other people particularly compassion towards foreigners. And then, and you know, the way, the way the book, I love the way the book ends, you know, there's, there's 120,000 people and there's also a lot of cattle you yeah. know, or animals, depending on your translation. Right, right, and right. I just think, you know, that God is concerned about primarily people, but he's using his creation to teach this profound, powerful lesson to his prophet in the process. One of the caveats that I think is easily missed is when Jonah is extremely happy. In Hebrew, yeah. if my memory serves, it's repeated twice. You know, yeah. happy, happy, if you will. Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Only time yeah. in the book he's happy. Yeah. <laughs> and talk yeah. about our, you know, our creature comforts. When I'm yeah. fat and full and happy and sitting in my chair and you know got my favorite beverage, watching my favorite program, reading my favorite book, then I'm happy. But boy, you bring a scorching wind and take away the shade tree, I'm not happy anymore. And it's very telling about our human pettiness and condition about when I'm happy or am I concerned about God's priorities? Yeah. One of the things I like to do when I teach on creation psalms, so psalms like Psalm 19 and other Psalm 104, which have a lot of strong creation themes, I like to encourage people let's go outside and somehow connect to God's creation. I actually like to go outside when it's either really cold or it's rainy or really hot. And I say, if it's cold, hot, or rainy, we're going to still go outside because sometimes I think it's good just to be a little bit uncomfortable and, you know, to kind of, I don't know, defame the God of comfort. People think I'm cruel. (laughs) It's like, okay, we're not going to do this for a long time, but we somehow need to defame the God of comfort. And I think that's what God is doing a little bit here with Jonah. He's taken away some of his creature comforts. And there is something as we encounter creation in its rawness, because, you know, it's raining outside where I am today, and it's kind of cold, but I'm protected because I'm inside. 
there's a way that I can think I'm a little bit more in control of my life and my circumstances. Mm. But God often uses his creation to humble me, humble us, humble his people, as he does Jonah here. And I think that's a good thing for us to be reminded of our humanity and reminded of God's sovereignty. And there's nothing like a powerful wind or a, a scorching sun to, I don't know, just kind of put us in our place. And I think that's part of what's happening here in chapter four of Jonah. Certainly a recalibration. Well, you talked about humbling, and uh, my mind runs back to Nineveh and the king of Nineveh in chapter 3, verse 6. And oh, again, yeah. we have this verbal movement, just like we did in the beginning of the book, where he, where Jonah rises up, he flees, he goes down, he goes down. And in chapter 3, verse 6, the king arose, interestingly, from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in the ashes. And so you've got this complete reversal of Jonah, you know, in, in, his, in his anger toward God, his hubris, whatever you want to call it. I'm, I'm going to go the other way. And the king is just the opposite. He steps down, but not to get away, but to draw near. And it, to me, it's a striking parallel to this is what repentance looks like. It's an amazing story. Just And again, the contrast between the king and his humility, this foreign ruler of this horrible, horrible, evil empire. And again, it was, it was the Ninevites were their, the Israelites' enemies. And over 150 years, they were just, I don't know, doing everything possible that you can imagine, negative in terms of attacks and violence and tribute and things. And so Jonah has a lot of reasons to hate these people. And yet, it's the king of Nineveh that shows how repentance should be done. And, and not only does he do it himself, you know, he kind of, he sits in the ashes and he's willing to be uncomfortable while Jonah, you know, in the next chapter is kind of complaining about it's a little hot or something. Mm -hmm. But, and then not only does he sit in the ashes, but he tells all of the, his subjects that they need to fast and basically be covered in ashes and sackcloth. And, and then again, I love this, even the animals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just, you know, I like to talk about bovine contrition always gets your attention. <laughs> I just love that. Overall comment, last parting observation, uh, when you're teaching the book of Jonah to students, to a church, a Sunday school class, if you were going to give them a takeaway. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the book of Jonah in some ways is kind of supposed to read me. It's easy for me to kind of make fun of Jonah and say, gosh, what a, a nitwit or whatever. What an idiot. But I think to be able to somehow see myself in Jonah and the ways that I resist God's lead, the ways that, well, hopefully I can look positively at, you know, how I can learn to lament or cry out in thanksgiving when God has delivered me in chapter two, but the ways that I need to be involved in telling people, hey, you know, there is judgment and God wants to connect to you and be reconciled with you. And so I think just for me, I would always be pushing people to see how I am like Jonah. And, and I think that because Jonah is an Israelite, there is an invitation, at least in the initial context, 
for the Israelites to see, oh, we are like this ourselves. And for, you know, 21st century readers today, many of us, hopefully, many of us, or I'm sure are Christians, how can we be learning from Jonah's mistakes? How can we be open to God's leading? How can we be loving our enemies and even be trying to talk to people that we might have thought of as enemies or people that would not be interested in in the gospel at all? How can we be we sharing with them about the good news? Because as all of scriptures tells us, the good news is for everybody and even the people that we might think are our enemies. And I think that's that's my takeaway for this for this book. Dr. David Lamb, Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Faculty at Missio Seminary. Thanks again for your time. Appreciate you, brother. I appreciate you and what you're doing. And um, God bless your podcast. And I hope that a lot of people are blessed by it. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. Thank you.